Let's pray. Lord God, you've given us your word. You have given us your people, your church. And you have given us your Holy Spirit by which your word comes alive in our hearts. You teach us, Lord, how to draw near to you both in word and deed. And so today we pray that you would teach us how to wait upon you. How to wait upon you with great expectation and great confidence and immovable hope based on what you have done in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in his death and resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to open up to Psalm 62. And it's where we're going to be today as we work through another discipline of disciples. The first thing I think of when someone tells me to wait is basically, man, I wonder how long this is going to take. I don't think I'm alone in this. Most of us are willing to wait for a seat at a good restaurant, but the truth is we'd rather just walk right in and sit down. Most of us don't enjoy waiting on hold while we talk to a service provider and wait to get into the details of a bill dispute or something like this while we listen to Muzak on the phone for 30 or 40 minutes. Most of us don't say, oh, good, when that little recording comes on that says, all of our associates are with other customers right now. The wait time is 35 minutes. And even worse is when you walk away from those calls humming the tune of the music. That's another part of the curse of waiting. In a world that rushes ahead, waiting to me also seems weak on the face of it. When I was in the full-time music industry, the ones who waited were the ones who didn't get the gig. In academia, what happens if you wait to publish, you perish. Even the early bird didn't get its worm by waiting, but by its ambitiously punctual breakfast habits. It's counterintuitive to us to wait. It's against our inner drive to solve problems ourselves, to set things right straight away ourselves. And yet, in this third and final week of our series, Discipline of Disciples, the Bible instructs us to do just this, to wait upon the Lord. And not only that, it says to wait upon the Lord in silence. There's not even any elevator music behind it while we're waiting. What Psalm 62 we're going to find teaches us is this. The only way that we won't be found wanting in times of deep distress, deep despair, is to live our lives waiting upon the Lord. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what it means to wait. What does that even mean? And we'll look in verses one and two as we explore that. And then we'll look and see what does David offer as the alternative for waiting upon the Lord? And why does this prove to be so utterly deficient? And that'll be verses 3 through 12. And then finally, we'll conclude by offering a few practical ways that we can wait upon the Lord. So first, let's have a look at verses 1 and 2 and figure out what does David mean by waiting at all? The interesting thing here is the English translation starts out, for God alone my soul waits 
in silence, something like that in most, some, some translations will say rests in silence. Most say wait in silence. But what's actually there in the original is a word that would start off the translation by saying nevertheless. You don't see it in the translation that we read because it's kind of abrupt. So translators leave it out, but it would sound something like this. Nevertheless, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. So why is there a nevertheless there? I think it's a powerful thing. It, it really indicates that just like many of us, David doesn't find it easy to wait in difficult circumstances for long durations of time, waiting for a word from the Lord, waiting for protection from the Lord, waiting to be satisfied by the Lord. But nevertheless, he starts off, I am going to wait upon the Lord. That's a point of comfort for me. And then right off the bat, he, he goes into verse 2 where we get this triple mega descriptor of the mightiness of God. And David loves to do stuff like this. God is my rock. God is my salvation. God is my fortress. And that's just in verse 2. He's going to keep going. Whatever harm can come to David by the hands of his foes, whatever unpredictable, uncontrollable tragedies should befall him, David is confident. I shall not be greatly shaken. But what does David mean by waiting upon the Lord? From where does this confidence come? It's kind of misleading because in the original, there isn't a word that translates wait, and there isn't a phrase that translates in silence. He says, how did it get there in the Bible? Well, it's kind of the translators trying to make sense of what's there. What's there in the original actually means something like be motionless, be still, stand still, freeze, stop in place. And this helps us understand a bit about what David is actually even calling us to and asking us to wait. He's not saying be passive in waiting. He's actually saying that wait, waiting is a way to be active in trusting in God. We want to be motionless, as it were, in regard to our human impulsiveness, while at the same time actively seeking in God alone the source of our confidence and the character of our response in the midst of great adversity. To wait is not to be passive. It is to be intentionally active trusting in God's confidence. To be active, for sure, in delaying our response until we first deferred to God to get the right coordinates and the right character by which we might respond rightly in the world. To wait is to be motionless, not to God, but to ourselves. To be motionless to our own natural propensity to rely on ourselves to freeze and to allow God to be God and allow God to be the refuge. And David will go on, as we'll see, to have this sense that without God as his fortress, everything will come crashing down. And David will show us that when that happens, if it hasn't happened already, we won't have the resources to put it all back together. But do we really believe that it could come crashing down in, in such a drastic manner. 
crashing down in such a way that I couldn't self-derive my own security and conjure up everything I need to solve the crises of the present circumstances. Do we really believe that? Well, David goes to that in the next section in verses three through seven. In verse three, David describes the malicious attacks of those who want to batter him and to thrust him down from his high position. In verse four, he speaks of the double-tongued nature of folks who delight in falsehood and who bless with their mouths while inwardly they curse. And if I were David, and maybe if you were in David's position, the temptation would be to do what feels really strong in that moment, what feels really just in that moment, to take life by the reins, not to wait, to take life by the reins and to fight fire with fire, to take on the tactics of the enemy who are attacking us and to feed it back to them in equal proportion. Oh, that feels good. That feels powerful. It feels just. Have you ever tried telling a kid, turn away, uh, turn the other cheek when someone's wrong to you? Tell that to a young child. They'll go, what? (laughs) Tell that to an adult and they'll go, what? It feels intuitively weird to do such a thing. But what does David do? David doesn't draw on his own human intuition. He doesn't lean on himself. He doesn't fight fire with fire. David, in verses five through seven, continues to be motionless in regard to the human pull to self-generated solutions. And David actively waits by seeking and trusting God and God alone. The word used to describe wall as leaning really means a wall that's buckling in from the center and just collapsing. A completely uh, terrible edifice. The word that's translated fence or tottering fence, I think, in this translation, really refers to a pile of little pebbles. You know, you go to the beach, you find those pebbles. A pile of little pebbles and field rocks just heaped up upon each other to make a hodgepodge kind of makeshift fence. It's a fence, in fact, made of these pebbles that doesn't even have mortar in it. That's the kind of fence that the word describes in the original. In other words, Something that's completely structurally unsound. That's David in his own strength. That's the resources David's working from if he doesn't flee to the fortress of Almighty God. And how often, my friends, do we all present a tottering fence and a waving wall as something other than what it really is? A totally unstable foundation. The failing architecture of human effort carried carried out apart from the might and mortar of God. And it reminds me, I grew up in Massachusetts, right a couple houses down from my grandpa. My family all lived like within walking distance of each other. It was a really cool way to grow up. These pebble fences that David talks about reminds me of those quaint little white picket fences Uh, Some of the houses around here have them. I think they probably date back to the 40s or the 50s. My grandpa's house had one of those fences. Little fence. Every year, he would paint the fence and tend to it. It was beautiful. It stood maybe three feet tall, just enough to deter a feisty chihuahua 
or a moderately ambitious toddler from, you know, getting out of the yard or something. Lovely. Those fences represented security. Uh, They represent comfort. But no one is under the illusion that those fences provide any actual protection. Operating on our own unaided human effort is like meeting a dangerous armed intruder standing on the other side of one of those three feet puny little picket fences and thinking, aha, you can't get me behind this structure. And thinking just because we've closed the little latch on the cute little quaint door that we're safe behind here. David doesn't rely on a pile of pebbles. David flees to the fortress, which is God alone. David turns his face and sets his eyes on God as his refuge alone. In his time of deepest struggle, when people are trying to take him down from his position, he doesn't fight fire with fire. He says, I'm going to flee to God, my refuge, because whatever happens here to my position, you cannot take my honor, my salvation, my glory away from inside those walls. Go ahead and try. But we ought to ask ourselves when we think about these sort of things, are we, though, quite happy to settle with a little three-foot picket fence or a pile of pebbles instead of waiting upon God? Are we happy to do that instead of freezing our impulsiveness, instead of making the motionlessness, instead of waiting on God? Are we trying to maybe engage our impulsiveness? To just go with it, man, because it feels good, it feels powerful, because there's a little bit of variables in life that I can control, and I want to latch on to that, to feel what it feels like to control the little that I actually can control, which is not much. You know, a lot of us look to waiting, and a lot of us have been waiting a long time. Some of us are waiting for deliverance. You know the word salvation that David uses here? That word means deliverance as well. There's something we need to be delivered from. It could be a physical ailment. It could be an emotional state that we're in. It's something that's coming at us and telling us, satisfy me Take care of this need. Don't wait for God. Take it in your own hands now. We need to be delivered from something. We're waiting. We're waiting. We're waiting. But it's, it's, it takes a long time, and it's difficult. For others of us, we're at a certain point in our life, a certain season of our life, we're waiting for a word from God, hopefully from his word, and other people speaking that word to us. We're waiting for a word And we may have been waiting for a long time. God, where am I supposed to be when the fall comes, when autumn comes, when summer comes? God, where am I supposed to be going to college? Things that can seem really small to other people, but they they encroach upon our joy and set up shop in the middle of our lives, and they say, you can take care of this apart from the Almighty. In fact, his tarry, his delay is inefficient you can do a better job on your own by just diving right in. Leave, leave the Lord's stuff later. You, you can deal with that later in life. Mm-mm. 
Sometimes we're waiting to be delivered. Sometimes we're waiting for a word from the Lord for a long time. It could be any of these things. But the fact is, David, in the midst of being physically assaulted, says, essentially, it doesn't matter whether you're of low estate or whether you're of high estate. The honor that you try to take from me by thrusting me down from my position, the the words that you try to speak behind my back to try and crush me in my misery, David says, you can't get at the locus of protection that surrounds that. It's not a pebble fence. It's not a picket fence. It's a mighty fortress, and his name is God Almighty, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and imagine coming at God. When someone is trying to get at you, yeah, it's easy to step over the picket fence, but imagine the idiocracy of someone trying to storm the gates of the mighty fortress of God. That's like a singular guy trying to take on the hosts of heaven and the castle of God with like a Nerf gun. It's absurd. Your safety, your security, David's safety is in God. This is why he says later, my glory rests in God. It's such a religious word, my glory rests in God. What does he mean? That word means my honor. There's all sorts of ways that you're going to feel you lose your dignity. When your body starts to dial down and doesn't work, when someone brings you down from a position, whatever it is, David says, you don't have any right or any access to what really is my honor and what really is my glory because it rests within the walls of the Almighty. I dare you to come take it, world. I dare you to come give it a try, devil. You won't broach that castle. It's not going to happen. And this is good news. This is really good news unless we refuse to silence our own self-reliance. It's good news, but only good news if we become motionless to the unchecked motivations of our own will and yield to the mighty fortress who is our God. And David shows us in verse five not only how to yield to God, not only that we should yield to God, but how to progress more deeply within his protective walls. David moves. Did you notice this? There's a little refrain in this psalm. It kind of makes it hard to memorize because verse 1 and verse 5, they're very similar. But there's something different about them. In verse 1, David makes a statement. My soul waits. He's proclaiming. He's making a statement. But what does he do in verse 5? He says, wait, O my soul. You see, in verse 1, David proclaims that he waits. In verse 5, David pleads with himself to wait. Wait, oh my soul. It's almost, like, it's almost like David is preaching the gospel to himself in the midst of a difficult situation. And we do this all the time in the spiritual life. I do it when I'm cycling up a really steep hill and there's, there's people twice my age just blowing by me up the hill and I'm trying to recover my pride and I'm saying, come on, John, you can do it. Just keep going. You can see the summit. You can see it up there, right? Or you're studying for something or you're pressing into something and you'll, you'll coach yourself. And I'm suggesting that one of the ways that we can wait upon the Lord is not simply to just go, make it all better. I'm waiting. 
No, it's to be active in our confidence and in our trust in God and motionless still in our confidence in ourselves. To keep that in check, to freeze that, to stop it in place. Man, the only way we can do this is by, you know, trusting God and preaching the gospel to ourselves could look like this. You might say, what does that mean? We go around preaching the gospel to myself. Jesus died for your sins. Thank you to yourself. No, what you can do is get in God's word. Say Psalm 62, since we're there already. And you can pray the words of the psalm, not simply by reading them, not simply by hearing someone else read them, although those things are wonderful, but by praying the words of the psalmist that God has inspired to become not only his prayer, but your prayer, not only his song, but your song. I'll give you an example, verse one. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Instead of just saying that, what if you inwardly digested that, as the prayer book says? What if you ate that word? It would be something like this. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Help me to wait, Lord. I don't want to wait. I don't want to defer to you. I don't want to be silent. I don't want to be still. Help me, Lord, to defer to you in all things. You are my rock. You are my salvation. You are my fortress. I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. Have you prayed like that through the Psalms before? You ever sit there in prayer and you're trying to come up with words and you go, I don't know what to say. Right, it's difficult. Here's the good news. Every word in scripture has been breathed from the mouth of God. And when you then put it on your lips and in your heart, it not only goes up as a prayer to God, it goes inward and transforms your heart. The word is powerful and you can preach the gospel to yourself when the walls are crashing down and when you're being brought low from your high place. You know, David not only speaks about trusting in God and makes progress in this, he shows us himself in verses one all the way to the end that he himself is progressing even as he waits. Do you ever notice this? Where you're trying to do a Christian virtue. For this week, it's been waiting because I've been preparing this sermon. And what inevitably happens? Every unjust, crazy traffic light that is 15 minutes long at the intersection of Arlington Boulevard and Allen, that one, causes you to wait 15 minutes. Every wrong thing that can happen that tests your holiness happens those weeks. And you feel like, gosh, how can I get up there and preach to these people a principle which I am so utterly incapable of doing myself. Do you know what I mean? You might be asking that question now. That's actually not contrary to the gospel. That's the point of the gospel. Any virtue that God is forming in you doesn't come instantaneously or by osmosis from the book. It comes through doing it over and over again. As David waits upon the Lord, his waiting grows in power and perseverance and trustworthiness. Listen to what it says in verse one. Here's how I would say this. You should always ask, show me that in scripture, John. That's a good principle. And so I will. In verse one, David proclaims, I shall not be greatly shaken. But what does David proclaim in verse six? Again, it's a little different. See that there? I will not be shaken. So what? 
Well, it's as if David is saying, not only will I not be greatly shaken, I will not be shaken at all. David's faith progresses as he waits. It moves from proclamation through practice to being perfected over time. David becomes someone who waits through waiting. And that's where we are too. You don't have to be perfect at waiting. Indeed, you won't be. But the one upon whom you wait is worth it. And he will provide that which leads you to a greater joy through waiting. You know, once you've moved into the refuge of God's sovereign, unshakable structure, it's a long way back if you want to try and go back to the pebble wall and the picket fence. And chances are, when you've been dwelling with God for a long time, you're not going to go back that way. How's it, what about the, how can we tell if we're making any progress in waiting? There's a number of different ways, but one of the ways that kept coming to mind as I worked on this sermon was the principle of Sabbath. Have you heard of Sabbath? Have you ever taken a Sabbath? You should. God commended it in the Old Testament, and it's there for a reason. Sabbath is a key indicator as to whether or not we are cultivating a discipline of waiting or whether we are leaning on our own strength, our own pebble walls. If we're failing to stop every week, if we're just too busy for that sort of thing, if we're failing to Sabbath, that's probably a pretty good metric that you are not waiting upon the Lord, but perhaps you're waiting to wait upon the Lord. Ah, yes, that's what you're doing. I'll wait till later to wait upon the Lord. When I have more time, when life slows down, when I retire, after the glory days of my youth, in July of 2027, whatever it is, we're waiting upon waiting because we don't want to wait now. And we think this is going to be better because I get the best of both worlds. I get to rush ahead with the world and then wait at the end when all the boring stuff happens. No, Sabbathing is not weakness. Sabbathing is strength. Because only when you Sabbath do you realize in your waiting that you don't stand a chance unless you're resting upon God. None of us do. It's an intentional pause in our week. And I want to suggest that all acts of waiting are Sabbath-like in nature. It's like applying the principle of Sabbath in real time to real situations. It's like a little snap Sabbath, pausing your human impulsiveness, responding from the reference point of the refuge of God and his power and love. There are many people in this church that we're all different places in our lives. Some of us come to church today having waited a long time, having pleaded with God for something in our life to change or something to give or a season to shift and to put us into a new place and we're waiting. And what I want to hear, what I want you to hear today is keep trusting in Jesus. Don't walk back on the path to the pebble fence. Keep trusting in the fortress of God. It is everything that it claims to be. After all, Psalm 62 says it in verse 12. It's based on God's power and God's love. And as Christians, those aren't just religious terms. What is God's love? The cross on which he poured out his blood 
for the sins of the world. And what is his power? It's nothing less than the defeat of death through the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. When you read this psalm through the eyes of Christ, that is the true foundation to the fortress of Almighty God. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And without him, we don't have any hope. The other folks might be at some mixture of this sort of place. I'm willing, John, to take my risk. I'm willing to stake my claims, at least for now, on a little mixture of some of my own skill, some of God's skill. I want to diversify my salvation portfolio. I'll yield a little closer to retirement or after college or whatever. Things are too good right now. Do you know what you're asking me? You know how vulnerable that is to yield that control over to almighty God? God asks too much of me. Is it God who asks too much of you? Or is it you who expects far too little from God? When it comes to waiting, there is not a spectrum of possibilities in Psalm 62. No, either you're fully waiting on the Lord or you're presuming to go it alone on your own power and your own initiative. Which is it? Either you are, as verse 8 says, trusting him at all times and pouring out your heart before him or you're satisfied with sprinkling a little bit of yourself here and a little bit of yourself there and, and treasuring up all the rest. Save it for the good stuff for later. But here's the thing, the true test, the true test comes when we finally come to the end of our strength, whenever that is, when we're incapacitated, when we're incapable of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps that one last time to feel good, to feel powerful, to feel in control, when we can't do it. And then, then the truth finally sinks in. Without God, our fortress has been greatly shaken, and it will be too late and too futile in that time to attempt to fast-track a lifetime of faithfulness and a lifetime of fruitful waiting into those final moments. The only way we won't be found wanting in those times is to spend our life waiting so that when those times come, God is our rock and nothing can take us from his midst. Motionless to ourselves, motivated by his will and his power alone. <laughs> Waiting is intimidating. It's intimidating because it seems to take forever. But that's kind of the point. Waiting seems to take a lifetime. Because it takes a lifetime of waiting to finish waiting well. Let's pray. Lord God... We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait, not just because we're impatient, because we're afraid. We don't know what's around the corner, God. We don't trust ourselves. We don't understand. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would more and more be those who hear the gospel again and again every day. That we would wait upon you, not in some flimsy, tottering fence, but within the framework of the fortress of God Almighty. We need you to do that. Do it even today in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.